Hello, and welcome to the Madeira Method podcast. I am your host, Mrs. Valerie Shelton, and my class and I are here today with Mr. Bill Cote, um, who was one of the first users of the Madeira Method. Um, so we're here to ask him some questions about the Mexican-American War, which my students have been researching very thoroughly. Um, and the first question, I'll just go ahead and start. Um, why do traditional history courses seem to skip over the Mexican-American War? Uh, in fourth grade, the students have learned about the Spanish missions, but the history of the Hispanic influence in California pretty much ends there. Why do you think that is, and how could or should history teachers incorporate this California history so we know more about our state and our background, especially since many of our students in California are Hispanic? I believe that the problem lies in the training of teachers. When you look at the, uh, uh, the education departments in the universities and colleges, they don't teach California history very well, maybe some cases not at all. And um, I never had a course in California history in, in college. So if you're not training history teachers, they're going to think it's not important. That's the problem. They're ignorant. They don't know. Now, ignorant is not a bad word. That just means an absence of fact. They don't know. That's very true. Um, leading up to the war, I know a lot of Americans made their way up uh, west in wagon trails following trails like the Oregon Trail. What role did the mass migration play in the lead up to the Mexican-American War? And what significant people came to California this way? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing uh, the question is about the influence of the Western migration in wagon trains? Yes, yes. The Oregon Trail, yeah. The, the, well, the, when you refer to the trail, the California-Oregon Trail was one trail up to the Rocky Mountains and then it split. The impact of all of those wagons, the first wagon train coming from the east California came in 1841 uh, and actually there were three of them that year. 1846 was the major year where they call that the year of decision where thousands came by wagon train. The impact of the of Americans coming to California by wagon train uh, you can't overestimate it. What it did, it put people here. It put United States citizens in Mexican territory. It put United States citizens in a territory that Mexico City wasn't controlling. So when the American leaders were already here, when they, they had to have people. So the wagon trains brought people and that laid the foundation the conquest. And just as a follow-up question that Leslie had asked is were there any significant were there any significant people that they're learning about right now who came in by that trail? Well yeah of course. 
18, I mentioned 1846. Uh, Benjamin S. Lippincott came in uh, 1846. Uh, the Donner Party uh, was on uh, a wagon train in 1846. Uh, and of course their demise played heavily into the history of, of, uh, of uh, California and, and the conquest. Uh, Bryant, Edwin Bryant, who wrote that, that diary, he came across in 1846. A lot of those people who came in 1846, as soon as they got to California, the war started. So they joined the California Battalion to fight against the Californios. And uh, Karina, you have the next question. She's going to come a little closer to the mic. Um, when we talk about the Mexican-American War, um, I, I can't hear. Yeah, he's having trouble hearing, so you'll have to put your mask down for a second. When we talk about the Mexican-American War, we learned that, that in Mexico, this is referred to as the California Conquest. What is the significance of this difference in labeling the events that led to the, Ameri to the United States acquisition of the West? So, yeah, so the difference um, she's asking about is why the Mexicans call it the California Conquest, but we call it the, um, the Mexican-American War. Well, the um, Mexicans call it a conquest because they lost the land. It, they were conquered in the war. They lost the war. Um, Americans call it, what are they? The Mexican-American War. Yeah, they, 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 want to, uh, uh, they want to humanize uh, this event. Uh, when you talk about a conquest, that means that somebody hurts, somebody bleeds, somebody dies. You can take and call it the uh, Mexican-American War, and it kind of puts both sides on an equal basis, which is false. So. It should be known as the conquest because that's what it was. Now, Brian, he's got quite a quite a long question here. Make sure you speak up. Let, let me bring up the questions so I can read them. Give me a minute. Mm -hmm. Give me just a minute, Brian. Okay, sir, go ahead. Okay. Um, how did the annexation of Texas lead to the conquest of California and the rest of the West? And why not just stop with Texas? According to Polk's declaration, the main catalyst he points to the reasoning behind the war with Mexico is a dispute over territory near Rio Grande, 
Basically, the two countries couldn't agree on the boundaries of Texas, and chaos ensued, and apparently some Americans were killed. Polk is vague on numbers in particular, but from your knowledge, what happened in the disputed area, and why did it signal to greater conflict beyond the bounds of Texas? Very well. Um, you've hit upon the heart of the problem in understanding the conquest. Go back to 1836. Texas was part of the Mexican state of Tejas y Coahuila. Uh, they revolted, won their independence for 10 years. That was an independent country. In 1845, they applied for admission to become a state. And in late 1845, uh, they were admitted. Mexico did not like this. Uh, then the boundary dispute erupted. Uh, the United States said the boundary of Texas is the Rio Grande River. Mexico says no, it's the Nueces River. That left a no man's land. So the United States under Polk put, moved uh, troops with Win under Winfield Scott into this no man's land. Mexico moved troops across the Rio Grande into that, uh, into that no, plan, no man's land troops from Mexico fired on the American troops in on land that Mexico uh, said was theirs. When that happened, Polk saw his chance. Aha! And so he went to Congress and he said, blood has been shed on American soil. Well, it wasn't American soil. Polk called it American soil. It was disputed soil. It was soil between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. So Polk asked Congress, declare war. And because of that, the war was declared. Polk did that because of manifest destiny. He did that because he knew that it was lead to the conquest of California, which is what he wanted in the first place. And Jeanette, you had a follow-up question? In your opinion, did Polk actually have other motives for going to war? If so, what were those motives? Uh, no, I, uh, I and most of the historical community believe that President Polk uh, was such an expansionist president that his sole purpose from the White House was to move the boundaries of the United States to include all of the land from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific. Some people even wanted the United States to extend from pole to pole. But uh, no, uh, Polk's uh, primary objective for serving as president was to enlarge the territory of the United States, go into the war, have the war, and conquer California. Okay. So Miguel, your question? Um, what happened to those who um, were against the war and um, when they spoke out about um, the war, 
And after I finished, what happened? Um, what happened after I finished? Did they like fall silent? Now, of course, I have to know which side you are. You talking about Americans who were against the war? Are you talking about Californians who were against the war? Uh, if you're talking about Americans, let me point out one famous American who was against the war. Okay. And that was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a congressman in 1846. And he kept hearing, this is the spot where American soldiers were killed. And he, this is the spot, this is the spot. And so Lincoln kept rising in Congress and said, show me the spot. Show me the spot where Americans were killed on American soil. And he said that so often that they began to call him Spotty Lincoln. Uh, so he was, uh, Abraham Lincoln was absolutely against the war with Mexico. Uh, there were a few other uh, Americans who were against it, but, but most were for it. The vast majority were for it. Now, let's talk about the, uh, the uh, Californios, uh, the Californios in particular. Uh, to my knowledge, no Californio leader wanted to fight that war. However, there was one important Californio leader who preferred that California be annexed to the United States. And that was uh, uh, Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. He knew that Mexico City didn't care that much about California. And he knew that either England or France or Russia or the United States were gonna take California. He preferred the United States. So uh, while we don't have opposition to the war from Californios, you do have some support for annexation to the United States. That's a really, really good question. Yeah. Yeah. So, related to that, we have uh, Octavio's question. What role did Native Americans play in the war? Uh, did, are you saying Native Americans? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Well, understand this. At the time of the war, there were from eight to 9,000 Native Americans, but most of them were living uh, up in the mountains of California. There were about a thousand Native Americans who had been uh, taken into the missions and so forth. Uh, when the war started, John Sutter uh, enrolled uh, a couple hundred Native Americans to join his army. Uh, John C. Fremont uh, in the California Battalion, when he fought, uh, he had a whole battalion of Native Americans. But in terms of numbers, the comparative numbers, they were small. Uh, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't make the difference, but they were there uh, fighting on the side of those who wanted to con the conquest. 
those who fought. Most of them, however, did not take part. Very good. Good question. So um, one one's question is kind of piggybacking off of that. So you want to come closer, Juan, or speak up? Right. How was the relationship between the people living near the Native Americans? How was the relationship uh, between whom? Between the two groups? Between the Californios, you mean? Yeah, because yeah. in John Sutter's um, story, they said that he was living close to Native Americans and he had close relationships with them. But how, how did that came to be? Okay, good. Good question. Uh, there was an attitude of, learn this word please, paternalism. Uh, every European descended person, whether they were United States citizens, whether they were Californios, whether they were Anglo or Hispanic, both sides looked at Native Americans as being inferior. Both sides uh, did what they could to, uh, to use Native Americans. Look at Sutter. He had them working in his fields with sticks, plowing with sticks. Uh, the missions uh, uh, would, would bring them into the mi uh, missions and uh, baptize them and, and, uh, and rule over them. So uh, every person that we call European, whether they descended from Spain, Mexico, the United States, France, Russia, didn't matter. They all looked upon the Native Americans as subhuman. And um, Jacob, that brings us to another question you had that kind of goes with the bigger picture of where this war goes. What role did the, did, uh, the issue of slavery have on the war, with Mexico having abolished slavery and the U.S. on the brink of civil war? If and how did the Mexican-American War influence and impact the coming civil war? The, um, well, first of all, Mexico did not abolish slavery. There was never any slavery in Mexico. There was nothing to abolish. Uh, when they wrote in their constitution upon independence, they just, they wrote, we'll, we'll have no, no, no slavery. Uh, having said that, you got to understand that the way that they treated the, uh, the Yaqui, for instance, it was almost, uh, close to slavery, but there was no absolute ownership. Now, the issue of slavery becomes important with the conquest because once California became part of the United States, it upset a balance. At the time, there were 15 free states in the United States. There were 15 slave states. Once California became a territory, it was only a matter of time until it became a state. In 1850, in September, California, former province of Mexico, became the 31st state in the Union. 
That was the impact of slavery on uh, the United States because now the question was, what's going to happen to slavery? Now that California is part of the United States and it joins, it now becomes the 16th free state, that means that in the Senate, the free states have the votes. That's the impact. And that's what happened because following that came the Missouri, I mean the California Compromise, the Compromise of 1850. And uh, uh, so, so the conquest of California uh, actually is one of the deciding factors on bringing on the Civil War. Um, because of the problems that it created between the states. Oh, it's good to know it's all connected. So, Kasner, your question. Um, can you explain some of the major battles and turning points of the war? Yeah, I, I can. Uh, you know, if we... Uh, you look at 1846, uh, that's the major, uh, well, <laughs> that is the year of the war in California. Uh, the, uh, the action of Fremont, Fremont coming in uh, to California uh, and going to Monterey and uh, uh, forming his California battalion, It's, it's a long story, uh, uh, but when Fremont brought 60 armed men into California and went to Monterey, and Castro uh, chased him out, and he so he took these men north to Oregon, uh, a fellow by the name of Archibald Gillespie caught up with him, and uh, he had secret, uh, secret, uh, secret orders from President Polk. And those orders were, turn around, war's coming, we want you to take California. When he did that, uh, Fremont turned around and came back to Sutter's Fort, and that caused a group of Sacramento settlers to attack Sonoma. So there's a, there's a major conflict there. The Bear Flag Revolt started, uh, these guys wanted to make California an independent uh, country. They captured Vallejo, took in Besutter's Fort, and then uh, Commodore Sloat, then the Navy came in and took over San Francisco and Monterey and raised the flag there almost without a shot. Uh, so Northern California is now um, in the first half of 1846 is now under control of the United States. Uh, then a fellow by the name, his name is spelled Kearney, but it's pronounced Carney, Stephen Watts Carney, a junior a general. He brought troops in uh, to Southern California and, and uh, was the basis for taking over Southern California in the Battle of San Pasqual. And uh, then uh, 
the the, uh, the people in uh, Los Angeles rebelled for a little bit, and uh, Fremont went down and and put that down. So uh, the, a general Andres Pico signed a surrender. It's called the capitulation of Coenga. So those three things: the Bear Flag Revolt in Sonoma, the Battle of San Pasqual uh, with Carney and the capitulation of Coenga uh, by, uh, by Pico. I sent this, I think I sent it to you, and uh, each of you will get, <coughs> excuse me, a copy of, of this outline of the major battles that, uh, that took place. Pretty good summary. So let's see, next question is Joanna. Uh, how did John C. Fremont uh, become the notorious leader of this war and what led to his later legal troubles? It seems uh, people either loved him and wanted him elected governor or they despised him. Um, Fremont became important because uh, after the Navy, it was the Navy and their Marines who actually conquered California. But Fremont was here uh, with his California battalion, so he became a representative of the army, and he could move his army back and forth. So that made him important. When he went down and, and, um, and uh, reestablished control of Southern California, and when Andres Pico uh, met him and signed this surrender called the Capitulation of Coenga. Uh, for a short time, that made Fremont uh, the head military man. So he considered himself to be the governor of California. Well, sorry, General Carney, he's a general. Uh, he's already in California and he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm in charge. Well, uh, then word came from Washington, D.C., making somebody by the name of Mason the actual American governor. So Carney then, he's ticked off. He arrests Fremont for insubordination and treason and marched him all the way back to Washington for a trial. This made Fremont angry, and he quit the army. That was the crux of his legal uh, trouble. However, he went up to Mariposa here and struck gold in a mine there that he had, and his life didn't turn out all that poorly. That's very cool. And now we get to Brianna's questions. Um, before the war, the, the U.S. had a representative in California in the person of Consul Thomas O. Larkin. Why was Larkin selected to be the U.S. Uh, representative? Uh, Larkin was skilled. Uh, uh, Stone called him uh, the uh, consul with the gold-handled cane. When Larkin went to Monterey and made a fortune, in trading uh, in Monterey. 
became the first millionaire in, in California, he obviously gained some power and he began immediately to negotiate with people like John Marsh and John Sutter on how can we make California part of the United States. So he became the leader, uh, not for the conquest. He was against military action. He wanted to make California part of the United States, but peaceably. He wanted the Californios to join willingly. It didn't work out that way, but that's what made him so important. Um, as I researched Larkin, I get a distinct impression that he's racist <laughs> towards the Californios, although he like remains cordial with like Californios, um, you know, the government, like uh, Mariano uh, Vallejo. Um, being Hispanic myself, I've talked a lot uh, to people about my research and someone told me that Larkin had problems with Mexicans because his wife, Rachel Holmes, ended up leaving him for one. Is, is there any, like, any truths to that or is it just like a rumor? You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, Larkin was anti-Hispanic. Uh, he, uh, he came to California, he would not become a Mexican citizen. He would not become Catholic. And um, as you point out, he married Rachel Holmes, uh, uh, an Anglo woman, and uh, they produced the first American baby uh, born in California. I know nothing about Rachel Holmes uh, leaving him at all, much less leaving him uh, for uh, a Californio. I'll have to look into that. Uh, but at, at this point, I'm going to say I know nothing about that. But I do know that uh, Larkin uh, was, was absolutely uh, an avowed racist. He felt much about the same about the Californios as he did about the Indians, uh, which is the view of a lot of the Americans. And then Leslie. Um, a goal of this class is to have a historical narrative published. Having gone through this process before and having had a few books published yourself, like You the Last Best Hope to Restore Our Nation, Madeira, California, and History's Outrageous Oddities, what most excites you about this particular project on the California Conquest? What excites me the most about the project is you. What excites me the most about the project is that most of the students are Hispanic. I love that idea where students of Hispanic uh, descent, whether it be Mexico, oh, by the way, did you know that the term Hispanic is really broad? Uh, somebody from Portugal is Hispanic. Somebody from Puerto Rico is Hispanic. Somebody from Brazil is Hispanic. So uh, 
uh, I suspect that most of our class uh, have uh, uh, origins from Mexico, although I don't know that. Uh, all of my other classes that I've taught, the majority are of uh, Mexican derivation. Uh, but this is the exciting part where, where students who have a stake in knowing the history of this country and knowing the history of this state. If we took every person who had blood ties to Mexico and we traced their origins, we would find somebody connected to this story and the story of the conquest. If you have a drop of Mexican blood flowing in your veins, the story of the conquest is your story. Much more than my story or much more than your teacher's story, it's your story. And the fact that you are digging out the roots of the conquest excites me beyond belief. Awesome. So those are all the uh, questions that the students had planned for today. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Before yeah, I, we go? I just want to say that uh, I have, uh, I, and, and I will send, or maybe Miss Shelton can just share it with you. I sent Miss Shelton uh, a, a chronology mm -hmm. of, of, the, uh, of the whole conquest, but I begin with those, uh, with those guys in 1832. And we run it year by year up through statehood. You know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in uh, 48, the Gold Rush in 49, statehood in 50, it's all there. When you get that chronology, that should help you as you sit down. You, you can take those tidbits and you can write about them as if you were participating or had participated in the events of this, uh, of this event. I, I, I am so excited about what you're doing. And, um, and so is the superintendent. And your work is going to make history. You are making history now. I don't know that this has ever been done before. You know, the conquest, people have shied away from. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to handle that. How do you, you know, the, the kid who wore the T-shirt that I told you about, he had on his T-shirt, I didn't, and he was a Mexican kid. I didn't cross the border, the border crossed me. Let's understand this. This is, this, this, this is something that people in California, they don't like to touch. We don't want to talk about this. And the more Hispanic people that, uh, the greater the percentage of Hispanic residents in California, the more nervous people get. Because we know 
that the United States, hear me out now, the United States stole California squarely and fairly. If you can put those two things together. Uh, I, I say that with tongue in cheek, the square and fair part. The United States had a plan to take California and it's not unlike what's going on between Russia and Ukraine today, where Russia wants to invade Ukraine. The United States had its own way to invade California. Now, I'll argue that with anybody, anytime. And I get a lot of op opposition everywhere. But I can make a case for that. This conquest was absolutely, absolutely inhumane and wrong. And I hope that you get angry enough to write about it, because anger will move you. Anger, anger will just, uh, it, it will make you a scholar. So I'm excited. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today and giving us your take on the Mexican-American War. Hopefully we'll do a part two at some point and have more questions for you. Um, I know the students are excited to dig even deeper into their characters that they're researching and they have that timeline that I, I, I handed out to them and everything. So they're, I, they're, I, just, they're just on fire doing this. I know that some, uh, some are doing Lippicott. Who's doing Lippicott? So Jeanette Okay, I know some are doing Karina. Larkin. Who's doing Larkin? Brianna and Miguel. Okay, and then somebody's doing Vallejo. That's Nicholas. Where'd he go? He's and, back there. And, and somebody, anybody doing Graham? Somebody doing Graham? Uh, Victor's not here, but he is assigned Graham. Okay, yeah. and Marsh. Uh, We've got a few Marshes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you can look at this through the eyes of your individual and, and, and taking these facts and, and, and writing in the first person as if it happened to you, if you can make yourself into one of these individuals. If you can make yourself forget yourself, if you can make yourself forget that you are who you are, and instead you're Lippincott or Vallejo or Graham or Alvarado, whomever, then an amazing transformation will take place when you begin to write. When you write down I heard, I saw, I can't imagine. Beautiful, it's gonna be great. And you're gonna tell a great story. Thank you so much. Um, everybody wanna say goodbye? Bye, Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening. You guys